Revelation chapter 2, the letter to the church at Ephesus. If you weren't here last week, we started in the letters to the churches, the seven letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor, which are addressed in Revelation um, 2 and 3. And as just a quick review of that, let me uh, just walk us through. Of course, that's just, a, again, a map of the area, the west coast of what is today Turkey, the seven churches. And then uh, we started by asking that question to make this applicable. What if Jesus Christ himself wrote a letter to Grace Fellowship? What would he say? And the letter to the church at Ephesus I entitled Strong But Cold. And we discussed the strong aspect last week. This week we'll discuss the cold. And here's some photos just to remind you. Um, in fact, you know that the most extensive Roman ruins in the world outside of uh, Italy are found in Ephesus. And uh, these are some of them, the great theater. This was one of the seven wonders of the world, the temple to Artemis there. And review. First element we studied was the command, verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1. And that is the command to write. And then number two is the self-description of Christ as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven, load, uh, seven golden lampstands. And then third is the commendation, which we spent most of the time on last time, which is the deeds, the toil, the perseverance, the, uh, that they cannot tolerate evil men. You put to test those who them, call themselves apostles, and they are not. You found them to be false. You have perseverance and have endured for my namesake and not grown weary. And verse 6, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And uh, here is all of those. Perseverance, stand against evil, testing false apostles, stand against false apostles, long-suffering, patient endurance, pressing on, and proper hate. And that brings us to the day. So let's read the passage in total. Chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false, and you have perseverance and have endured for my namesake, and have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you've fallen, and repent, and do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So here Christ himself is dictating the first of the seven letters 
to the first church, Ephesus, which was the most prominent church of all the seven in Asia Minor. And he uses what we discussed last time as the sandwich approach, where he gives commendation and then sandwiches in between compliment the concern or criticism and then ends with commendation in verse six. So you got compliments in verses two and three, the criticism in verses four and five, and then a final compliment in verse six. But having walked through all these compliments, the thing I think we need to jump into right off the bat and remember as we get into the criticism is that the church in Ephesus was a great church. It was a great church. And we don't need to drift into the mindset that I, at least I've had from, I guess, a lot of previous teaching that I've heard that implies that because they've lost their first love, that negates all the compliments. Remember, Christ had 10 commendations for one criticism. So there were 10 commendations for this church. They're a great church. Um, and don't let the one criticism negate that fact that we're not talking about a church that is dead, like one that we'll study later. We're talking about a church that is alive and powerful, tested and proven, in spite of being in one of the most challenging environments you could be in. As we discussed last week, if you weren't here, you can go on the website and download the PDF. Ephesus was a religious insanity. They had temple worship of Artemis, of many gods, imperial cult worship of the Caesars. Christianity was tremendously persecuted and threatened and challenged, and it would cost you your very life to be a Christian. And in spite of that, this church grew and thrived and prospered as a strong, powerful church. And a good way to review that too is to read the summary of what happened with Paul when he came back for his third missionary journey in Acts 19 and Acts 20. Very interesting passage there about how when he came back, the uh, stir that occurred because of all the people who were coming to Christ under the teaching of Paul in the midst of the persecution. So, Ephesus had been built by Paul, by Aquila and Priscilla, by Apollos, by Timothy, by Paul again, and then even by John the Apostle. What a heritage. What a church known by Christ to be committed, hardworking, toiling, persevering, doctrinally pure, testing and exposing falsehood, long-suffering, patiently enduring, not growing weary, even hating what Christ hates. What a commendation. Would we like to hear that about our church? Obviously, yes. And yet, they were not perfect. They were genuine and real, but not perfect. So, just as a pause, how does it strike you when there's an example of a person or a church and all that's heard is what's good. How is it that we're more drawn and more interested in a personal testimony or a church's testimony or any kind of testimony that includes not just what's right, but what's wrong? 
Why, why is that more, just as a preliminary thought, why is that more appealing? Why is that more engaging to us? Because it's real. We can relate to it. What, what do we despise the most? What, what are we repulsed by? Hypocrisy. And if everything is good, and when we know they're sinners just like we are, like Chuck said, we know it's not real if it's only good. And so hearing the bad makes it real and genuine and applicable. First statement, we're at verse 4. This I have against you, that you've left your first love. Here's a statement that I got from Robert Mounts. <clears throat> Every virtue carries within itself the seeds of its own destruction. Huh? <laughs> that's good that's good well every virut and every virtue carries within itself the seeds of his own destruction see even within virtue transposing the letters totally changed it <clears throat> alright so considering that's virtue how, how is that a true statement what, what does that mean what does it mean that every virtue carries within itself the seed of its own destruction? What was Peter's downfall? His strong leadership, right? Because he overshot his mouth. And um, let, me, let me ask y'all a question. Here's a very visible thing that happened recently. Are y'all familiar with Mark Driscoll? You know, Mark Driscoll is a contemporary pastor of Mars Hills and Mars Hill Church in Seattle. And recently, there's a big controversy about <clears throat> a marketing company receiving money from his church to promote his book and get it on bestsellers list. And so it has been highly attacked by the media. And he's just recently issued an apology. <clears throat> and he said in the apology that um, he now sees the marketing campaign used for real marriage was manipulating a book sales reporting system, which is wrong. He regrets how the significant turnover of key staff members was mishandled. He said his angry young prophet days are over, and he plans to reset my life, even abstaining from social media for the rest of the year. And... <clears throat> His network has grown tremendously in the past 17 years. Over 13,000 people on the online Mars Hill network. But focusing on that statement about the angry young prophet, that really characterized Mark Driscoll. But as a result, he was appealing to many young believers because he was edgy and contemporary and kind of shocking in what he'd have to say. And so that was a great strength that God used greatly. But what was his weakness? That he was an angry young prophet. And he pushed the limits too much and it brought about a downfall. Just as an example, you may disagree with my opinion on that, but I think I'm just trying to make an example of a, 
I even thought about using an example of the University of Alabama football team last year about what was their strength, how did it become their downfall. But a better example is Adam and Eve, because it's biblical and Alabama's not. Um, Adam and Eve were perfect. And what kind of knowledge did they have? They had perfect knowledge. I don't mean they were omniscient like God, but they had perfect knowledge in the garden. And yet, what did Satan use to tempt them? Knowledge. Specifically, as Chuck said earlier, an, uh, an appeal to pride of their knowledge because they said, you won't surely die because God knows in the day you eat of that tree that you will have knowledge of good and evil. And yet, they had knowledge. They had perfect, untainted by sin knowledge. And that's what made them fall. So, think about this. What were the virtues for the church at Ephesus? They're in verses 2 and 3 and 6. So, what would you think would be their weakness in which they could fall? Their virtues in 2 and 3 and 6. If you were to characterize all those virtues that you read there, is there like one kind of summary handle you could put on that? What would you say, and maybe I've alluded to it already in the title, but what would you say you would say about this church in one word or a phrase? That what kind of church were they, positively? Strong. Strong doctrinally pure. Orthodox. They stood firm against evil and error. Well, now, what is the weakness of that that Satan can use to tempt or to distract or to cause you to fall away? If you're strong and you're doctrinally pure and you test everybody and you find them to be false, and then what? Is you're the standard. And so... How does that come across to people? Arrogant, unloving. Arrogant, unloving. So, what is the issue here? This I have against you. You have left your first love. Now, first of all, the preposition that is translated against is a Greek root that could also be interpreted according to which again tracks right back to what I've just been saying. According to your strength, this I have against you. You've left your first love. So, exactly what is this love they've left or abandoned, and what does it mean that it was their first love, or as the ESV says, the love they had at first? Well, first of all, we have to determine, is this talking about a love for God, or a love for people? A love for God or a love for people? Because, first of all, the root word used here for love is agape. And so immediately we would think, well, then that obviously means it's a love for God. Not necessarily, because most of the uses of agape in the New Testament are for love for fellow man. So agape defines not the source of the love, but the type of the love. And my notes that will be on line for this, there's a discussion in there about the four different Greek words for love. You've got eros, storge, phileo, 
and agape. And the point is that all the other types of love are somewhat beneficial to the lover, not the lovee. <laughs> and, and agape is only giving. It, it only gives. It only has thought, a mental attitude for the object, for the lovee. There's nothing in it for the lover. Nothing. It's unconditional. It's altruistic. It only gives. So, with that in mind, that's the type of love that he's talking about. As I say, it's unconditional mental attitude. It's like God's. Here's another phrase I found that I thought was real good. Did I misspell it too? What does that mean? It's hard for a watchdog to smile. Like if, have you ever seen the picture of the changing of the guard at the Buckingham Palace? What do those guards never do? They never smile. And little kids and people run up and try to get them to smile, and they will not smile. Why? They're on guard duty. They're, they're on guard. So why is it hard for a watchdog to smile? Because he's on guard. So he's not going to smile. So this church was on guard. They're in the midst of terrible circumstances, terrible oppression, terrible perseverance, terrible anti-Christian thought, a worldview that was totally against them. Sound familiar? So if we're going to be a doctrinally pure church in this culture, what's the danger? That we're an unloving church. You can be doctrinally pure, stand strong, have power, and even be complimented 10 to 1 by Christ, but you can fail by losing our first love. Back to the question about is it love for God or love for people? Think about this. In Matthew 22, when Christ was asked, what is the greatest commandment? What was the answer? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the greatest commandment. And the second is what? Like unto it. What does that mean? In the same order, same manner, same word, agape. And that is love your neighbor as yourself. So see, those are tied together. And you probably see where I'm going. I never answer a question directly. And that is that the answer, I think, is that it's what? Both. They'd lost their first love for God, which meant they'd lost their first love for others. Because proper first love for others is only expressed out of what? A genuine agape love for God. That's the only place it comes from. First love is a fundamental first principle that ethics must begin at the beginning. In the New Testament, it's not so much that we're commanded to love as that in the gospel we experience the love that commands. Earl Palmer said that. We experience the love that commands. So, just walking through this, I think that the primary reference here is to love for others, but that it starts with the right love for God. And why do I say that? I think without getting into a lot of points, which you see I'm passing up four pages here, 
But if you go online, you can read all this. And that is that in verse 3, it says, you've done all these great things. Why? For my namesake. So did this church love Christ? Yes, they love Christ. And then look at verse 5. What is the cure for the criticism is go back and do the deeds you did at first. So is that referring to deeds for God or deeds for others? In the context, it seems deeds for others. And what's the threat in verse 5? That if you don't, I'm going to remove your lampstand. What is the light of a church? That's the gospel witness, the testimony. Is that to God or to others? God doesn't need the gospel. Others do. So my point is, in a summary form, is that I think the focus is on love for others. Because, don't get me wrong, now God's most concerned that we foremost love him, but how is that manifest as a church and as a believer is it's manifest in love for others. Christ said what? what will, by what will they know that you're my disciples? That you love one another. That's how they know that we're disciples. Okay. So, as usual, truth and intention. You don't have to choose between love for God. It's love for God and for fellow man. It's both. All right. So, they've left or abandoned their love that's linked to their strength. They were a church founded upon and defending the truth. Truth and love are inseparably linked together. In fact, one of the greatest passages about that is in Ephesians, right? Truth without love is error. Love without truth is hate. Do y'all... Now, I wrote those statements. I don't know if anybody else ever said that. but So feel free to criticize that. I mean, do y'all agree with those? Or how is that true or how is that not true? Like, like what, in the church, everybody in the church, what, when you think of them and you think of their strength, could you divide everybody up into two categories? They're strong in truth. They're strong in love. They're strong in prophecy. They're strong in mercy. They're strong in leading. They're strong in serving. They're, you, how, you, you know, however you want to do that. But why would you even do that, Chuck, if you didn't care about them? Ephesians 4.15, 4, or the letter that Paul wrote to Ephesians, what does it say? Speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in all respects to, into him who is the head. So we're to build up the church by speaking the truth in love. But Paul said to the Philippians, Philippians 1.9, I pray this, that your love may abound more, still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, truth. And then in verse 15, he says, some preach the gospel or Christ from goodwill and they do it out of love. 1 Timothy 1.5 says the goal of our instruction is love from pure heart. So, notwithstanding Chuck's example here, <laughs> would y'all agree that the, the ultimate Christ-like approach is to be lovingly truthful and truthfully loving? 
Isn't that the way we're supposed to be? Can you, can you neglect one for the sake of the other? Like, can you practice church discipline out of truth and sacrifice love and it be effective? Can you practice church mercy and love without standing for the truth and that be loving? Y'all see what I'm asking? The smile, the one smiling in the back, are y'all unmerciful? Is that why you're smiling? <laughs> oh, are y'all just amen in that? <laughs> Any comments on that? I mean, but do y'all think this is hitting the nail on the head about a great church like Ephesus had a weakness, and that was they were so much on watch. They were so much on guard. They were so much under persecution and trial that they were so firmly established in the truth that they forgot what? Love. They forgot love. And you tend to, you tend to look in instead of looking out. And you tend to kind of bow up and say, we're going to protect our turf. Well, well, think about it this way from the standpoint of your spouse. What if you were the perfect husband or the perfect wife? But think about it, you were the perfect spouse. You did exactly what you should do. You always served the other. You always loved. <laughs> well, just even perfect. <laughs> That's real good. Um, but what if you, in the process of being perfect, you told your spouse, I'm doing this because I'm commanded to, but I don't love you. I'm going to be a perfect mate for you, but I don't love you. That's, that's a very true statement. It's not possible. But think how they would feel. Would, they, would, that, would that be exciting to them, you know? And so how does God feel, you know, if God had their hands and their mind, but he didn't have what? He didn't have their heart. He had, they were doing the right things, they were thinking the right things, but they weren't what? Motivated by the right things. They weren't passionate about the right things. That, and why is that important? Why is it so important to God that we do the right things out of the right motive? Because who gets the glory? The one who's loved. So God is all about his glory. So if we don't do the right things and think the right things and teach the right things and defend the right things out of love, it's what? Wood, hay, stubble. It's going to be burned up. It's over. So verse 5, quickly. What's the cure? What is the solution? Um, the call is to do what? Three steps. Remember, repent, and repeat. Remember from where you've fallen, this love is seen as a lofty height from which they've fallen. That's the way the wording is. And then 
And, and by the way, doesn't anything of virtue, anything of vision, anything of real value to us? Isn't that the way it is? When you want to really renew your marriage, what do you do? You remember, why did you get married to begin with? You go back to the beginning and you remember. And then you repent, 180 degree turn. Is This word here is metanoia. Meta is change, noia, mind. Change your mind. Not regret. In um, Matthew chapter 27, it talks about, in the King James, it's translated that Judas repented after he betrayed Christ. The word there is not metanoia. It's metamelami. Melami meaning emotions. So Judas did what? He changed his emotions. Repentance is when you change your mind. And if you change your mind, you change the way you think, you change the way you think, you change the way you act. So repentance is not that you feel bad. Oh, well, I feel bad that I hadn't been loving to you. But I am committed to do a 180-degree turn and go the other way. And so that means repeat. Go back and do what you did to begin with. Like Chuck said, what made them successful was they ministered to people. They loved people. And even as the historical writers wrote about them, they ministered to the people who persecuted them. They were a ministering, loving church. Go back and do what you did at first, the deeds you did at first. And notice, too, quickly, um, his final call, for he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is pointing to the promise that comes next, and that's a promise to the overcomers, those who overcome. Verse 7, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What is that obviously pointing to? That's pointing back to something and pointing forward to something. What's it pointing back to? An overcomer is a believer. Remember 1 John chapter 5, verse 4? If you believe in Christ, if you are born of God, if you have faith in Christ and you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, then you're defined by John in 1 John 5, 4 as an overcomer. So an overcomer is one who's truly in faith, in belief, in trust in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. So what is granted to those overcomers? First one here, letter to the Ephesus, is that they get to eat of the tree of life, which is in paradise. Where was the tree of life first mentioned? Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. They were driven out of the garden and stationed flaming cherubim and flaming swords, turned in every direction to guard the way of the tree of life. And then in Revelation 22, where it's pointing to, is that in the new heaven, in the middle of the street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. As verse 2, Revelation 22, verse 14 says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Verse 19, And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city. So the tree of life was a feature of the original creation, and it's a predominant feature of the new creation to come. It symbolizes the life 
of God. The presence, the intimacy, the feeding of God for us to grant us life. It's not dull, monotonous boredom, but it changes different fruit for different times. And it's always satisfying. It's always life-giving. And it's always um, joyful and passionate in, in giving us life. Some people believe this is a deliberate reference to the fact that the temple of Artemis, one of those, that seven wonder of the world, that it was a tree shrine. The symbols for Artemis were a stag or a deer and a tree. And so that temple was a sanctuary. And if you were a criminal and you were in the temple, you were granted salvation. You were granted sanctuary. You couldn't be prosecuted for your crimes. So the temple was inhabited by priests who were pimps, priestesses who were prostitutes, and criminals who were hidden out there. That's the clientele in the temple. Well, what if it is a deliberate reference to, as Galatians and 1 Peter says, the tree of Christ? Christ was crucified on what? The tree. And so what if there's a deliberate reference here? I don't know this, but there could be a deliberate reference that they would constantly, or, or not, that they would immediately pick up upon that would say, just as they can flee to the tree of Diana, of Artemis, in the temple, and be safe, we too can what? Flee to the cross, to the, temp to the tree of life of Jesus Christ and be saved. Um, very possible, very probable. But I want to go back and I want to end with what I spent the most time on, and that is losing our first love. Because I think this is a problem or a, a potential problem. Let me say it this way. A potential problem for me and I think a potential problem for this church. We are a doctrinally sound church for the most part, I think. I mean, I guess I'm giving ourselves a compliment, but I, I think our church is pretty solid. And I, I tell you what, it's unusual how many, church, how many churches are there that even practice church discipline. You know, that's unusual. So, so what might be our greatest threat? Our doctrinal purity. So what might be our warning that Christ would give to us? Don't lose your first love. Don't fail to do the things that you did at the beginning. Remember where you started and repeat and, re and repent and repeat. Yeah. And I think you're right. I just think we'd better be on guard because we can be that watchdog who forgets to smile and wag its tail. Bad, bad analogy, I know, but here. I want to end with this question. Is God at the center of your life? And I know I spent that time proving that this is talking about love for others but again how do we love others with agape love that we love God first with all our heart mind soul and strength and then the second comes easy because it's like unto it and that is we love our neighbor as ourselves